Hello ladies and gentlemen, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio I'm going to cover 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 through 25, the end of the chapter, nine verses. Our context is this, in, chapter, in the first half of chapter 5, Paul talked about honoring widows, and now in this section of scripture, he's going to talk about honoring elders, as well as choosing elders, and as well as rebuking elders. So I'm going to entitle this section, Choosing, Honoring, and Rebuking Elders. We start in verse 17, 1 Timothy 5. The elders who are good leaders should be considered worthy of an ample honorarium. This is Home and Christian Study Bible, a little bit unusual translation. These good leaders should be considered worthy of an ample honorarium, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. All right, first of all, note the plural of elders. In modern times, it's the elder, the not the elder, but the pastor, capital P, pastor, the one-man show. He's the one-man leader, and he gets a salary, and that is a perversion of what Paul is saying here to Timothy. Now, of course, an elder is the same thing as an overseer and a pastor. They're always in the plural in every letter, in every church that's mentioned in the New Testament, always in the plural. Overseer was the term that was used of a Greek city-state leader. An elder was an Old Testament designation of somebody who was older, and so the terms are all conglomerated together to describe a church leader. In Acts chapter 28, in that chapter you can see the three words used together referring to the same people, elders, overseers, and pastors, or shepherds. Lots of different English translations for the three three Greek words, but those are the general translations. Now, as Ellison says, and I just mentioned, they always mention in the plural. So if we're talking about paying a pastor a salary, you might want to think about paying the other elders a salary too because it says the elders who are good leaders should be considered worthy of an ample honorarium. If you interpret honorarium to be a salary, well then are we going to pay the elders too? Said, no, that never happens. It's always the one-shot professional clergy that gets paid. Now what does this mean, an ample honorarium there, these good leaders are supposed to get? Ample in the KGV and many other translations is double. In fact, in the ESV, the New American Standard, the NIV, the Lexham English Bible, the American Standard Version, the KGV, the English Revised Version, all those translations have double, as in double honor. Well, what does it mean double? It can mean both double in respect and double with respect to respect and with respect to money. In other words, give the elders money and give them respect double. Two types of honor. The word, as we'll see in a minute, teammate can mean either honor, esteem, or it can mean money. Double honor could mean more money than was just given to widows because Paul has just told Timothy to put the widows on the list if they're over 60 and they have moral character and they don't have anybody else to take care of them. So be sure you pay your elders more than the widows. I don't think that's what Timothy's saying. Home and Christian Study Bible just says in double just means ample. Give them enough money so they can live. Jameson Fawcett and Brown says it means give the elder more than the good elder, the good leader, the elder who's a good leader, give him more than just the ordinary elder. And Jameson Fawcett and Brown also says that the word does not literally mean double. Well, from all of that mess, I guess we have to pick something. So I would just, I like the uh, Holman Christian Study Bible translation that the elder should be, have an ample honorarium. He should have enough. Don't be stingy with him. After all, he's working for you. He's doing a good job. Now let's look at this word honorarium. Most other translations have honor as in double honor. The ESV, these are the translations that have honor that have honor and not honorarium. 
ESV, NASB, NIV, Lexham English Bible, the American Standard Version, the KGV, the English Revised Version. So you see most translations translated as honor. Now the Amplified translates it this way, double worthy of honor and of adequate financial support. So they kind of split the difference and put both in, both of the meanings of TMA in there, honor and adequate financial support. The contemporary English version says he should be paid twice as much. Well, then that, that, that's, that doesn't surprise me that a contemporary English version would translate it that way because that's what the modern church system does. It pays hired hands a salary, which in my mind is an absolute disaster. It leads to nothing but troubles I'll talk about in a minute. All right, well, the two options, as I've sort of hinted at here before, as to what that word time translated honorarium in the Christian Standard Bible, the two options are A, money, or B, esteem, as Ellison the commentator says. Now, Ellison says the context favors the option of money, and Adam Clark says almost every critic of note allows that time here signifies reward or stipend. Okay, well, granted that, it nevertheless, the word time nevertheless still does not mean salary, because there's a difference between money that's given and a salary that's paid. A gift is not a salary, although both are in the form of money. Now, the Holman Christian Study Bible translates it as honorarium, and an honorarium is a gift, at least in its original form. A speaker comes to speak. He doesn't charge a salary because of his intellectual or professional greatness. He comes to to bestow his wisdom upon a bunch of adoring members of an audience, and as an expression of appreciation, you give the speaker a gift, an honorarium. And that's what the term honorarium means, of course. Now, that's degenerated, too, is where you almost have to pay somebody to come speak. But that's not the way it originally meant. So a gift is not a salary. A salary is money owed by contract or by law. One can sue for a salary. One cannot sue for a gift. That's in law. That's basic contract law, actually. So there's a huge difference between a gift and a salary. And people just run the two together. And like Adam Clark said here, he said, TMA signifies reward or stipend. Well, I have no problem with giving an elder reward for working hard as long as it's a gift, but a stipend is, a, sounds like a, I don't know exactly what a stipend is. It sounds like something that you owe somebody legally. We need to keep that straight. Now, as I said, the word TMA is not, does not mean salary. It might mean money, but it doesn't mean money in the form of a salary. Now, let's look at the, at Thayer's definitions for the Greek word TMA used here for honor or honorarium. The de- Thayer's definitions for TMA do not have do not include a definition meaning salary. It's not there. The first definition of theirs is, quote, a, value, a valuing by which a price is fixed. The second and last definition says, quote, honor which is shown to one. So there's a value or a price, a worth from which we get money. And the second definition is honor. Now, to make my case even stronger, there are some simple Greek words that Paul could have used here if he meant to pay the elders a salary. Mystos, for example, According to Thayer's means, quote, dues paid for work, quote, wages, hire. That's the word he would have used if the elders were to be paid a salary. There's another word that perhaps he could have used, obsonion, obsonion. Thayer says that's a soldier's pay or an allowance. So either two Greek words meaning pay or wages. Paul doesn't use them. He uses the word that could mean honorarium, as the Christian Standard Bible says, a gift, or it could mean respect or esteem. Either way, it doesn't mean a salary. What are the evils arising from a salaried leadership? 
Well, first of all, you emphasize the clergy lady distinction. And I tell you, leaders in the church love to do that. I'm just looking at K.P. Yohannan, the head of the Eastern Believers Church. And he had he and his bishops were standing around. They had enough clothes on to make the Pope look like he was a member of a nudist colony. I've never seen so many robes. Uh, he must, I don't know how they walked without falling down. The weight of those robes, must, it must have been 500 pounds worth of cloth in every robe. And it was shiny robes too, red and gold and hats and cowls and shepherd staffs and all this stuff. How in the world do you get that kind of nonsense out of the New Testament scripture? How in the world can Christians do stuff that's stupid? That is not the way elders were in the New Testament. New Testament elders were brothers. They were leaders, but they were not popes. So that's the first thing. This trouble with paying clergy is pretty soon he's first among equals. As K.P. Johannan's organization is, he's the first among equals. He's the first among equals, and pretty soon then his say has more say than everybody else. Then pretty soon you've got a bunch of passive sheep listening to what the pastor says. Nobody checks him. He's full-time. All the other elders are part-time. they got jobs to worry about. So pretty soon, the one-man pope, excuse me, pastor, is running the church the way he wants to and to heck with everybody else. So that's the first problem in paying a leader a salary. The second problem is, is you make the leader a slave to the congregation. And this is, I just gave you the problems for the congregation, but here's the problems for the pastor who's taking the money. If the pastor doesn't tickle the ears of the congregation, what do you do? You cut his pay and you fire him, as good Baptists have been doing for decades. So the temptation becomes huge for the leader to engage in church politics. He's got to make people happy or they're not going to pay his salary. He's not going to be able to put braces on his kid's teeth. Don't do it, folks. Now, if you've got an elder who needs to be sprung loose because he's working full time and he doesn't have time to really work hard at the word and in teaching, as Paul says here, well, give him some money. Give him some money so maybe he can go part time. Well, give him enough money to where he can go part time, but give it to him as gifts, anonymous or or not, it doesn't really matter as long as you keep him going and he lives by faith, just like apostles have to live, just like missionaries have to live. Now, these good leaders, that, as the Holman Christian Study Bible calls them, these good leaders are those, or it says especially, good leaders should have an ample honorarium, and good leaders who especially work hard at preaching and teaching, which sounds they are super good leaders, they especially should get an ample honorarium, ample either ample honor or ample money. If they work hard at preaching, that word preaching is such a misleading word, and I wish that the Holman Christian Study Bible had not translated it that way. The Green's literal translation in the KGV has word, which is the Greek for word, especially those who work at the, at hard at the word and teaching, because elders don't, that's evangelism's not their major job. They are dealing with people who are already Christians. Preaching is done to the lost. There are several words Evangelio, I think, is one, and I forgot the other one. That means proclaim. There's a couple of words that mean evangelize, to preach to the lost, but word does not refer to that. And yet the Holman Christian Study Bible uses that ambiguous word preaching. The word is so ambiguous, I try never to use it because it's totally misleading. An elder doesn't need to evangelize his congregation. He needs to teach it. We go now to 1 Timothy 5.18. For the scripture says, Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker is worthy of his wages. Now this scripture that's quoted, Do not muzzle an ox, is quoted twice in the Bible, once in the Old Testament and once in the New. In the Old Testament we read in Deuteronomy 25.4, Do not muzzle an ox while it treads out grain. In the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 9.9, 9, we read this, For it is written in the law of Moses, Paul is quoting Deuteronomy 25, 4. 
For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it treads out grain. Is God really concerned with oxen? Now, the point that Paul's trying to make is, well, actually, the point that the Old Testament law was making is, you need to feed the ox while he's working. As he walks around the millstone, pulling that big heavy rock around, don't put a muzzle on him so he can't stick his head down and eat the straw that's on the ground, or the wheat that's being ground up and is seeping out through the edges of the two millstones. Let him eat some of that. Give him energy. Keep him happy. Keep him working. You put a muzzle on him, you wear him out. And so Paul says, hey, that's not the main point of that law. I'm going to use it here as a as an example to show that we don't want to wear out our workers. We want to make sure that they are amply supported. Here, here, that's good. But that does not mean pay a salary. You want to take that literally? You ever seen an ox that was paid a salary? Now, the other place that this is quoted, and not that is quoted, but the last half of the verse is quoted, the worker is worthy of his wages. Interestingly enough, that's not in the Old Testament. That's only in the New Testament in Luke 10, verse 7. Jesus tells his uh, disciples who are heading out to evangelize, he says, remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they offer, for the worker is worthy of his wages. Don't be moving from house to house. Now that snippet there, Luke ten seven, had been circulating probably for about eight or nine years, and so it's quoted as scripture, as Ellison says. And it's scripture which is only found in the New Testament. And so Ellison says, therefore, the New Testament is given the same standing as the Old Testament. It shows the inspiration of the emerging New Testament. Now, there's some other New Testament scriptures which show that New Testament scriptures are scriptures, the most famous of which is in 2 Peter 3:15 and 16. Let me read that. Also regard the patience of our Lord as an opportunity for salvation, just as our dear brother Paul has written to you according to the wisdom given to him. And of course, that was through Revelation. He speaks about these things in all his letters in which there are some matters that are hard to understand. The untaught and unstable twist them to their own destruction, as they also do with the rest of the scriptures. So Paul's letters are scriptures, and there's other letters that are scriptures. Other letters of Paul, probably, because be, uh, but, but other letters, other apostolic letters, let's put it this way, that are scriptures. Now, that's a pretty good case for the inspiration and inerrancy of the New Testament, because that's what Scripture means, an inspired and inerrant document. However, we need to be clear here that there is a possibility that Paul is only quoting, only referring to the first part of verse 18, 1 Timothy 5, is Scripture. For the Scripture says, do not muzzle an ox. No problem. And, and now Paul is not quoting Scripture anymore, he just takes Jesus' statement and the worker is worthy of his wages. That's not what it sounds like to me. It sounds like the scripture refers to both of those sayings, and that's the way I'll take it, although you could quibble on that if you wanted to. Now, it says the worker is worthy of his wages. Some people might say, well, see there, Paul was saying we need to pay Timothy, or, or he is saying to Timothy that church leaders should be paid wages as a salary, which would, of course, completely vitiate my statements that I just made. Well, we don't take muzzling the ox, literally. Do we pay an ox, literally? And besides, Luke ten seven takes the word wages metaphorically, too. Not literally. Because in Luke ten seven, Paul, Jesus is talking about evangelists of the kingdom not uh, or taking hospitality, which is eat the food and board. Let me read Luke ten seven again. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they offer for the workers worthy of his wages. The evangelists, the disciples who are sent out there to eat and drink what the their host offer them. That's not a salary. That's taking hospitality. It has nothing to do with salaries. The word is used metaphorically. So to take 
muzzling an ox and worker worthy of his wages dealing with hospitality to take that and say we've got to apply it literally here to pay somebody a salary is completely unacceptable not to mention which paul never took money even as a gift from those he was teaching to he did take money from the churches at philippi and thessalonica after he left town but an elder is not ever going to leave town so he might end up taking gifts from those who he's teaching unlike paul i will have to concede that because it's not practical for an elder not to be there when he takes money, but he has the same problem that an apostle does. You take money, and pretty soon people can question your motives. Ah, you're teaching here to make money. It always happens. This uh, tremendous K.P. Yohannan controversy, I read first 30 or 40 pages of his book called Never Give Up, and he was involved in financial controversy. And he had to go around saying how he just drove a VW bug and he only took $50,000, later $70,000, whereas most people in his situation would be taking $300,000, all of which is true. But the very fact he was taking a salary from an organization held him up to charges of financial impropriety, not, not in themselves, there were other things too involved, but it didn't help any. If you want to be safe from all that, just never take money as a salary. Paul never did. And, and whoever charged him of, well, whoever successfully charged him with financial impropriety. Nobody, because they couldn't do it. He could defend himself very easily. He said, look, I work with my hands. I didn't take money from you, so get off of it. If Christians today would do that instead of taking a salary, would just live by gifts. And if they're doing a good job, people going to give them money. I mean, heck, if you can raise millions and millions of dollars for mission work, don't you think that people could, out of the, all the money that they give for that, that they might somebody might give a little bit of money to you so you can live? I mean, it's not like it's unheard of. The old missionaries did that all the time. Hudson Taylor, for example. Overseas Missionary Fellowship missionaries still do that. As far as I know, last time I heard, I talked to one. It's hard to get them to talk about money because they're told, because Hudson Taylor said, don't you ever mention money. He told his missionaries that, and that idea is passed down through his organization. I got a hold of one in China one time out in the country, and I begged him, and I kept asking him, and he kept changing the subject. And then finally said, look, I'm going to talk to you about this, but you got to promise me something. You don't give me any money. Because we're not supposed to talk about this. I said, I'm not talking to you to talk about giving you money. I just, I'm curious. You know, I'm an ex-business professor. I like financial matters, you know. And, and so he told me. He said, no, we're never supposed to talk about it, you know. And as far as I remember, he said that we don't collect a salary either. That people give money to them and finance them that way through gifts. That's admirable if you ask me. But unfortunately, you're not going to find many people that will do that. Now, having said all this, I don't want to sound negative about it. The elder who's working hard should not be left in a situation where he can't support his family. If you've got an elder that's working for the church, you got to make sure either he has a part-time job, a full-time job, or are you giving, people are giving him money, not a salary, but giving him gifts so that he can be free to say what he wants or not say what he wants or leave if he needs to leave without having a bunch of financial problems and, never, and that he might never be accused of financial skullduggery. 1 Timothy 5.19, Paul continues, Don't accept an accusation against an elder unless it is supported by two or three witnesses. Now, Ellison points out that this probably, re, probably reflects the turmoil caused by the false teachers. They're coming in and making accusations against elders, saying they're not teaching the truth or they're immoral. And, and Paul is telling Timothy, who is an apostle to these house churches in Ephesus, he's a leader there. And if somebody comes to him and says, hey, an elder's doing something bad, well, then Timothy could have gone to that house church, or however they did their eldership situation, that network of house churches, however they did it, he could have gone and said, this guy is accused of impropriety because one guy told me that. Well, that's his judicial process sucks. 
<laughs> because it is so easy to bring charges against people. You got to have witnesses. You got to have facts. You got to have testimonies. The next lawyer, I can't tell you how those words will resonate deep down in my soul. You just can't go around charging people with stuff. Now, this is probably in the middle of the church discipline process, which you remember Matthew 16, Matthew 18. Step one, someone confronts, actually, it's Matthew 18. Step one, someone confronts the elder privately about the alleged wrongdoing. Step two, if there's no satisfaction from the elder, two or three others are brought with the accuser, the plaintiff, if you will, the accuser, and these two or three other elders, uh, other witnesses are brought to the elder and says, you need to stop doing this. We think you're doing this. And the elder says, no, I'm not doing anything wrong. Okay, that's the two or three witnesses that Paul is talking about here. And so then the two or three witnesses go to the whole church and they say, we got a problem with this elder. And, and what Paul is saying here is go through the proper steps of church discipline before you bring an accusation against an elder before the whole church. And by the way, it's the whole church. It's not the group of elders. It's the whole church. Nowhere does Jesus ever say bring the matter before the elders. Nowhere does he say that. Now, Jameson Fawcett Brown says this sounds like Timothy has the power as an apostle to try cases against elders. Well, I don't think so. Paul is probably referring to Timothy's churches. The churches are not to condemn an elder without the witnesses. Timothy's just their advisor, their mentor, their apostle. That's a, that's a different subject about apostles' authority, which I've gone into in great length and detail. And where is it? First Corinthians chapter five. This story about how the church is supposed to put that man sleeping with his stepmother out of the church, and everybody says, "See there, Paul's got the authority to set him out of the church." And to which I reply, no, the scripture says in 1 Corinthians 5 that the church, when you are assembled, you put him out of the body, not Paul. He's just there in spirit. But you, the church, are the ones that put him out. Now, this re requirement for two or three witnesses, Jesus got that straight out of the Old Testament when, in Matthew 18 when he said this is what you're supposed to do before you receive that accusation before the church. In Numbers 35, 30, if anyone kills a person, the murderer is to be put to death based on the word of witnesses. But no one is to be put on death based on the testimony of one witness. Witnesses, that's two or more. Deuteronomy 17, 6, the one condemned to die is to be executed on the testimony of two or three witnesses. No one is to be executed on the testimony of a single witness. Deuteronomy 19:15, one witness cannot establish any wrongdoing or sin against a person, whatever that person has done. A fact must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So you see that idea of plural witnesses is everywhere in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament, too. We go now to 1 Timothy 5:20. Paul tells Timothy, publicly rebuke those who sin so that the rest will also be afraid. Now, this doesn't mean that Timothy is just supposed to get up in the pulpit, which they didn't exist back then, but he's not supposed to get up publicly in the gathering of saints and say, John Doe is sinning. No, it means at the sta at stage three of church discipline, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown point out. In other words, somebody has got to go to that. Well, it says those who sin, that could be an elder. It could be just people in general. So let's just say the sinner or the alleged sinner. Somebody's got to go to the alleged sinner privately. First step one. Step two, if the alleged sinner doesn't admit the sin or repent of the sin or if he denies the sin well then you got to bring two or three witnesses along and come to him again that's stage two now stage three is when you go before the church and say we have gone to the brother i've gone to the brother privately i brought witnesses with me and he still doesn't rebuke so i need to bring it before the church and then if the church says no nah, we don't think the accusation stands and the guy's innocent he's innocent until he's proven guilty a great jurisdictional jurisprudential policy Make sure everybody's innocent before they're proven guilty. Unlike politicians who are accused, if they're if they're Republican politicians, they're accused of 
being guilty as soon as the charge is made. They're guilty until proven innocent. However, if they're Joe Biden and there's a charge made, well, they're innocent until they're proven guilty, which is the way it should be, actually. Right now, I, I'm assuming that Joe Biden did not sexually harass that woman or sexually assault that woman that he's accused of assaulting because it hasn't been proven in court yet. Now, making it publicly, publicly rebuking these people, that's what makes it serious. And that's what will make others be afraid. Ooh, I'm not going to... I'm not going to sleep with my girlfriend if I'm going to get public rebuke for it because, ooh, that might be bad. So the next time she acts real sweet and temp tempting to me, I'm going to say, uh-uh, honey, uh-uh, I don't want to get dragged before the church and pointed out as a fornicator. I'm not going to do it. This idea of sin being exposed is Paul also has the same idea in Ephesians 5.11. Don't participate in the fruitless works of darkness, but instead expose them. Sin needs to be brought to light. Light makes dark disappear. Sin is done in darkness. You bring light to darkness, the darkness flees, and there's the sin, and oh, let's get rid of it. Sinner, thieves don't like to operate in the daytime. Sinners don't like to operate in the daytime either. You know, these people that live on Main Street, but they love on back streets because it's dark back there and nobody sees them. Now, Paul tells Timothy, publicly rebuke those who sin. That's tough to do to rebuke sinners, people who are sinning. That rebuking is the word that's used in church discipline. If your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. Okay, so rebuke just means you confront somebody about what you think is their sin. It's hard to do. In fact, I don't even think I can remember ever doing it. I hate conf confrontation, and I hate to bring up to people that they're sinning. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13. I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer who is sexually immoral or greedy and idolater or verbally abusive, a drunkard or a swindler. So now if you've got a friend in the church who's acting this way, you're going to have to tell him why you're not associating with him anymore. You're going to have to say, I'm sorry, you're living a sexually immoral life. I can't, I can't condone that. You're greedy. You're cheating your workers. You're not paying salaries. You've you got an idol. You're abusing your wife. You're a drunkard. You're a thief. You're a crook. Whatever. I can't even eat with you. But we are supposed to rebuke our brothers. Now, I don't have the verses in front of me. Where is it? Matthew 7, I think it is, where it talks about if you're going to rebuke somebody, you take the beam out of your eye before you take the speck out of your brother's eye. Absolutely, you should do that. But then it goes on to say, take the speck out of your brother's eye. never says don't rebuke anybody. It says judge righteous judgment. you got to make judgments about people's actions and their sins. This idea, oh, don't judge me, don't judge me. What is it? Planet fitness, a no-judgment zone. Oh, we don't want to make a judgment. Adolf Hitler killed six million people. Well, that's okay. What's good for Adolf Hitler is good for Adolf Hitler. What's good for me is good for me. I'm not going to condemn him for genocide. I'm just not going to bother with that. No, you have to make judgments in this world. And you think I'm exaggerating about this postmodern idea about what's right for me is right for me and what's right for you is right for you. I have heard a millennial colleague of mine teaching English in a Chinese university sit there and make a long argument about why he was not going to condemn Adolf Hitler using exactly the same idiotic logic I just used. So this idea is everywhere. Well, this is not the idea of the church. You have to deal with sin. You've got to get rid of it, or it will tear your church up, because a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. Now, Paul says public rebuke those who sin. Well, who are the those? Well, it could be church members in general, or it could be elders, as I just finished saying. I believe it's probably elders, because that's the context of what Paul had just been talking about. In fact, it's the context of this whole chapter. So rebuke these elders or other people, but probably elders, so that the rest... The rest of the elders will be afraid, or the rest of the house churches will be afraid, or the rest of the other 
believers in the local church, not just the elders will be afraid, whoever. Whoever hears it, they're going to think twice about doing the same sin, that's for sure. This idea of hearing and uh, this idea of being afraid of sin being exposed publicly, we can see in Deuteronomy 13:11, all Israel will hear and be afraid, and they will no longer do anything evil like this among you. you know, the earth, I don't remember the context of Deuteronomy 13, but you know, if the earth opens up and Korah falls in after Korah's rebellion, that's going to make the average Israelite think, you know, maybe we ought not to question Moses' leadership anymore. Maybe we not better not grumble and want to go back to Egypt where it's safe and secure. Acts 5.11, then great fear came on the whole church and on all who heard these things. That's when Ananias and Sapphira got blasted by the Holy Spirit because they lied to Peter at a time when the church was vulnerable, just getting started. People didn't have a lot of money. They were in Jerusalem as pilgrims. And so Peter's trying to administer the money held in common, and they lied. And when they got killed because of their lying, the rest of the church had great fear. Great fear came on the whole church. You don't mess with the Almighty God when you're dealing with holy things. I wish that modern-day Christians dealing with money and televangelists and such who've given the church such a bad name, why do they not have the same fear that Ananias and Sapphira had? I don't know. Another question is, is why doesn't God blast them and make the congregation take them out on a stretcher like he did with Ananias and Sapphira? Sometimes I think that would probably be a nice thing, but I, I don't want to be that extreme about it, but it just, the idea has crossed my mind. First Timothy 5.21, Paul tells Timothy, I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing out of favoritism. Well, first observe what things? Well, the things he's been talking about in the chapter, which is how do you recognize elders? How do you honor elders? How do you honor widows? All that kind of stuff. And so he says, I solemnly charge you. That's not just, I think you ought to do it, Timothy. It's, I solemnly charge you. I adjure you, if you will, which is almost like I'm putting you under oath to do these things. I don't know if you can push it quite that far to make something legal, make a legal oath out of it, but it sounds like it. I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus, the first and second persons of the Trinity, and the elect angels to observe these things. Now, what is elect angel? That's an interesting phrase there. Most translations have elect or chosen angels, but I thought to myself, well, choice might mean make more sense because elect can be translated that way. Electone is the Greek form there, if I remember correctly. And you can translate that word as choice, and the choice angels in the sense of the special angel, special to God. Young's literal translation does translate it that way. 1 Timothy 5.21, I testify fully before God in the Lord Jesus Christ and the choice messengers, messengers being angels, the ones that are special to God, maybe. Or it might have to do with rank ordering of angels, the chosen angels, so some are higher than others because they're chosen by God to be higher in rank. Paul has actually dealt in 1 Timothy with rank a lot. For example, he says, men teach and rule, women don't, there's rank. Uh, some, others are, some elders are worthy of double honor and are ranked over other elders. Okay, and so this is Ellicott's idea, so he's, Paul is probably dealing with rank. He says this about these angels. They are especially selected by the Eternal as his messengers to the human race, as was Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. And that sounds like even though they were chosen, it means choice in the sense that they were special. Choice and chosen are very close in meaning. It's just a, it's just a nuance. Now, of course, 
Well, let's, let's look at three options that this word elect could mean. It could mean elect as opposed to the fallen angels who became demons. In other words, just like believers are elect into salvation, these angels were elect into salvation. That always sounded kind of strange to me that angels would be elect. But Clark and Jameson Fawcett and Brown suggest this meaning, and it does make sense because, after all, some angels didn't make it. Some are demons now, so some angels had to be chosen by God, otherwise they'd ended up like a demon. So it could mean that. Second option, it could be God's chosen angels. They were chosen to serve the church as opposed to angels whose job was not to serve the church. That's reasonable to me. That's Adam Clark's suggestion. Or, as I said, third option, choice angels closer to God than the rest. So the verse is not meant to say that they were elect for any special purpose. They were not elected to do something. They were just special to God. I'll leave that open because I'm not really sure. I don't have an opinion one way or the other exactly what Paul meant here. But anyway, the elect angels are the chosen angels. Uh, Timothy is to operate in their presence to observe all the things that Paul's been writing Timothy. Now, it's interesting that angels can see what Timothy's doing here. I don't know about you, but I've always had the idea that in heaven, the departed saints don't know what's going on down here because there's too much garbage going on down here, and it would ruin their eternal bliss up in heaven if they saw the pain and suffering and COVID-19 and the People's Republic of China government in Beijing and that kind of thing going on, and they might get upset. Well, actually, there are. I've got three verses here that show that angels are very much concerned about what's going on on this planet. They're concerned about church affairs, 1 Corinthians 11.10. This is why a woman should have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels, angels looking down at the church service. The angels are concerned about individual salvation, Luke 15.10. I tell you in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. This is Jesus speaking. So angels have joy over individual salvation down here. They've got to be looking down here and knowing what's going on if they're going to be rejoicing over a repentance. The angels look over the work of apostles, 1 Corinthians 4, 9, For I thank God has displayed us. For I thank God has displayed us, the apostles, in last place. Like men condemned to die, we have become a spectacle to the world and to angels and to men. So angels are watching what the apostles are doing. Now these angels, let's look at a couple of options as who they can be. I've already looked at three options and what the election was for. Now let's look at a couple of options as to who the angels are. And I realize these two choices are not mutually independent of one another. Your choice of one option is for the election is going to affect your choice of what the angels are. But let's look at this. What's the options for angels? Option number one, angels close to God's chosen people who are present with them. Their job is to minister to the heirs of salvation. This is Ellison's idea and Adam Clark's idea. Hebrews 1.14 says, are they, referring to angels, not all ministering spirits sent out to serve those who are going to inherit salvation? So you could say they were elect in order to help God's people, and so therefore they're close to God. God they're, excuse me, they're close to God's chosen people. They're close to Christians and are present with Christians. Or it could be special elect angels, choice angels, near God's throne who are uniquely associated with his presence. So this could be angels close to God. That, that choice of angels would make you tend to want to say elect meant choice because they're special because God holds them near his throne. I think of those two options, I, I think I prefer the option that it's the angels who are close to God's people because of Hebrews 1.14, they're ministering spirits sent to service, and I think that's what they're chosen to do that. That's a good interpretation of that verse. They're chosen angels, chosen to elect, chosen to minister to God's elect, chosen to minister to God's people, to the Christian church. We go to verse 22, 1 Timothy 5. 
Don't be too quick to appoint anyone as an elder and don't share in the sins of others. Keep yourself poor. Pure, excuse me. Don't keep yourself pure. Now, what does it mean, don't be quick to appoint anyone as an elder? Ellison and Jameson Fawcett and Brown, Ellison mentions and Jameson Fawcett and Brown affirms that this means appointing elders to churches. However, Ellison affirms, but Gill and Jameson Fawcett and Brown deny, that it means reinstating elders who have been publicly rebuked. Remember the context of previous verses here. We're talking about don't rebuke an elder except in the presence of two verses. So the idea is from the context we're saying, well, don't be too quick to reinstate someone who's been rebuked and kicked out of church. I don't think that's what it means. I don't. The, the New American Bible has lay hands on anyone. Do be quick to lay hands on one. In fact, that's a lot of translations have that. A lot of translations have don't be too quick to ordain someone. To me, I don't like that word ordain. It gives too much of an institutional, bureaucratic, and autocratic flavor to the word. Ordination was simply recognizing the elders the church corporately had chosen. You can prove that by going to Titus looking at the two Greek words for ordination, which in the English sounds, in the King James sounds so official and Anglican, but actually that's not what it meant. Raising of the hands is one word, karatoneo, I think the word is, raise your hand, and you recognize who the elders are, And but here Paul says don't be too quick to appoint anyone as an elder, which sounds like Timothy has, has the power to go around as an apostle and say, I'm the apostle, I choose your elder. I don't think that's what that means. I think what it means is don't be too quick to recognize someone that the churches have already chosen as their elder because the apostles did recognize the choices of churches. Well, at any rate, whatever Timothy's role in appointing elders in the churches were, he wasn't to do it too quick. Why? Well, because you need to observe the elder to make sure he's not a false teacher. Remember, they were having a lot of trouble with false teachers. you got to make sure. I knew of a guy one time that spent 10 years. He was a hyperpreterous heretic. He spent 10 years developing his poisonous, blasphemous, gangrenous doctrine within the belly of the church of a good friend of mine. And all of a sudden, after 10 years, he was a sleeper cell, a heretical sleeper cell. After 10 years, he starts having secret Bible studies. without, And he was an elder in the church. He worked his way up to be an elder in the church. And without telling my friend, who also was an elder in the church, without telling him, this heretic started having secret Bible studies. Well, it caused a big split. It almost ruined people's faith. The church blew up. It barely survived. It's doing great now, actually. But it took years to 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 get over the mess, it almost destroyed my friend, who hardly slept at all for I don't know how long. Now, that guy hid it for 10 years. A later verse, we're going to see some people's sins are not immediately obvious. Well, this was a guy whose sins were not immediately obvious. And so, you know, you kind of have sympathy for somebody appointing somebody as an elder like that because he kept it so hidden so quick. But a lot of times, most of the time, actually, if you let people go long enough, they can't keep it quiet for 10 years. They're going to let you know that they're heretics or that they're immoral or whatever, and you can say, ah, you're not going to be an elder in the church. If you do appoint an elder too quick, you share in the sins of others. Well, what does that mean? Well, here's some possibilities. You recognize a false teacher, then you share responsibility for the sin of recognizing a false teacher because you and the other members of the church are appointing a either a false teacher or an immature leader, an immature elder, or an immoral elder, and you're sharing in that sin of falsely choosing an elder, or, or excuse me, the sin of choosing the elder rashly and too quickly, or it could be you're participating in the sins that the hastily ordained elder commits, because you could, you ordained the elder, and then the elder does the other stuff. I remember one time, this was an analogous situation, 
I had two friends of me who started a conference, house church conference, 14 years. We put that thing on, people coming from all over the place, and we invited this guy who was a very good speaker, and he shared our same ecclesiology, if you will. But this guy ended up being a church wrecker, wrecking friendships. He wrecked everything, and I'm telling you, it was the biggest mess. We finally purged ourselves of this guy, but we it wasn't an elder situation. It was a conference. It was a little bit different. But the the fact is, is we didn't have him vetted enough, and he came back to bite us big time. I've never had so much grief in my life. And my and and the, my other two people, uh, uh, friends who helped put on this conference. Oh my gosh, they even suffered more grief than I did. It was horrible. So, if somebody wants to be an elder right now, say I'm sorry, buddy. You're gonna have to wait a little bit <laughs> because. The downside is just too bad to to recognize elders too quickly. And you will share in the sins of that elder. Everybody who's wrecked, and I didn't finish my point. And so this fellow caused so much trouble that I kept saying to my other two friends, we have got to publicly denounce this guy. I know it's unpleasant, and it's going to make people mad at us because he had a following. I said, but we are participating in his sins because everywhere he goes, we gave him sanction. And that means it come, the finger's going to come right back on us. And so finally we did it. I wrote an article about the guy, Took spent a long time writing it. It went all over the Internet. I think it wrecked his ministry because we don't hear any more about him going anywhere in America anymore. And I, I say I wrote it. I wrote the draft. I had three other guys sign it with me or help co-write it. And we took care of the situation, but it's much easier to take care of the situation up front than in arrears, I tell you. Keep yourself pure. <laughs> and I think Paul is not talking about keeping Timothy morally or sexually pure. He's talking about keep yourself pure in the matter of appointing elders. I don't consider myself pure in the matter of choosing conference speakers anymore. I'll tell you that. Just don't keep yourself pure. Don't share in the sins that this that the hastily ordained elder is going to commit and he's going to drive other people into. Don't share in those sins. Or it could be don't share in the sins of appointing the guy too hastily and don't share in the sins that the hastily appointed elder does, those two different sins. But just stay away from all that. Now, when it says don't share in the sins of others... The others could be the sins of other brothers in the church in general, or it could be the sins of those who rationally and hastily appointed the elders. And, of course, generally it's the whole church that does that, so A and B might be the same option. Or option C, the sins which are committed by elders who are rationally and hastily appointed. That sort of summarizes what I just said, really, in a different way. Everybody sins in the church by appointing the elder, or the apostle who recognizes the elder shares in the sins of appointing an elder too quick, or the whole church or the appointing, or the recognizing apostle, the whole church shares in sins that the hastily ordained elder commits. A lot of options there as to what could be involved, and it's a very, very messy situation. This is a serious verse, folks. Don't do it. Lay hands suddenly on no one. First Timothy 5.23, Paul continues, Don't continue drinking only water, but he's talking to Timothy. Use, But use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. Now, Timothy apparently had would either never had drunk wine or he quit drinking wine because Paul says don't continue drinking only water. You, you've just been drinking water, water, water. He had totally abstained from wine. Now here's some options as to why Timothy had done that. Adam Clark says it could be because of the Old Testament injunction that priests were forbidden to drink wine while ministering, and Timothy is ministering now. And so Timothy wanted to set a good example when he ministered. That's one idea, or it could be as Jameson Fawcett and Brown suggest, that Timothy had wandered into a little excessive asceticism. Think about this. Timothy must have known that wine was good for an upset stomach. So why does Paul need to tell him that? 
drink wine for your stomach. Everybody knows that. Even today, I mean, you go in China, you're going to have upset stomachs. And I kept a bottle of wine sitting in the cabin. When it hit me, I grabbed the wine and drank. Oh, it felt so good. Along with a big bottle of ginger ale. So that Paul even mentioned this to Timothy, suggests Timothy had gotten too tight about drinking wine. In fact, Ellicott says this, quote, Paul, Paul, quote, fears lest the effect of his direction to his son in the faith to keep himself pure, at the end of verse 22, might lead Timothy to the practices to the practice of a useless and unhealthy asceticism. So, maybe so. But I really think that what Paul had told Timothy was, be pure about selecting elders. Don't screw that up. And then he just throws this in because he's getting near the end of the letter. Don't drink water. I don't think Timothy really got into asceticism. I can't prove it. I just don't. Somehow that speculation doesn't, doesn't convince me completely. But at any, it doesn't really matter. At any rate, Paul says use a little wine. Now use could mean add a little fermented wine to purify your water, as Ellison says. Or it could mean drink a little wine from time to time when your stomach acts up. I think that's probably what Paul meant. Use a little wine means drink a little wine, not not stir the wine in your water. Because of your, st- and of course that shows that t- uh, teetotalism is crazy. Drunkenness is a sin, but teetotalism is not advocated by the scripture anywhere. You're supposed to drink wine in moderation. Use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. Now, Ellison points out that Timothy, since he had frequent illnesses, he had to do his apostolic work, fighting off sickness all the time, and that makes him even more of a noble character. And I say, yes, sir, it does. I've been on lots of mission trips, sick as a dog. I remember one time I got food poisoning in a restaurant in Shanghai, and I'll never forget that day as long as I live. My wife was with me, if I remember, and I staggered out of the restaurant. It's pouring down rain. People are gathered by the side of the road trying to get a taxi, and I kneeled down on the sidewalk in the middle of that so uh, in the middle of that rain, got soaking wet. And then I put my head on the concrete, grabbing my insides and saying, God, please kill me. Please take me home now. I cannot stand this. And every now and then I look up. I said, I wonder where Linda is. What am I going to do? And I see all these Chinese faces looking at me in pity. And I think, well, somebody help me. They didn't know what to do. They, I couldn't speak Chinese at the time. This was so long ago. So I couldn't say anything. And they couldn't speak, probably couldn't speak English. And if they could, they didn't know what to do with me. So finally, somebody in that crowd calls the police. Please come pick me up. And they say, take him to his hotel. And I had to somehow tell them. I did manage to tell the police where my hotel was. I don't remember if they took my wife or not. I don't remember that. But I remember that getting getting out of that car and staggering up to my hotel room and thinking, my gosh, this is awful. Next day, it was I had a flight the next day. The poison was gone by one day. Usually it lasts 24 hours. But it's absolute hell. So... I can understand. Paul and Timothy, they traveled a lot. And when you travel a lot, your body is not used to the bugs that are in a, that are in a foreign environment, and your stomach gets upset. So Paul's saying, hey, drink the wine, kill the bugs. I remember being in Nigeria one time on a mission trip, and I thought, and somebody had a bottle of Imodium AD, and I said, oh, let's set that bottle up. Let's offer some sacrifices to it. I am so tempted to be an idolater here. And also those pink Pepto-Bismol tabs, oh, those things are wonderful. You chew two or three of those things, and that'll knock some diarrhea right in the head. So, this is medicinal uses of wine, which is not a bad idea. One more point about this, the fact that Timothy had frequent illnesses, that cuts against a cessationist claim that apostolic persons could heal instantly. Here's how it goes. I had a cessationist put a comment on one of my YouTube videos. He said, he said, Christian charismatics today, continuationist, if we, if you will, today say that they can pray for people and they get sick. It's automatic. 
And I wrote back and I said, who says it's automatic? Some people get healed, some people don't. Why do you say it's automatic? And he said, well, the apostles could do it at, at will. I said, really? And I wrote back and I said, uh, I've quoted this, quoted this verse right here. And I said, really? Timothy was an apostle. He was frequently ill. He didn't heal himself. Paul was with Timothy completely. He was an apostle. He didn't heal Timothy all the time because Timothy was frequently sick. I said, it just means that when people got sick, they would pray that God would heal them, and then the healing would take who knows how long, but then, then the healing would come. But it wasn't automatic like it was magic. And this cessationist response to me was, well, that's because at first the apostles could heal instantly and automatically around eighty thirty or so. But when you got close to the time that the canon was closed, like in First Timothy here, this is in 62 or so, it's closer to the time of the canon, you can just... Closer to the time of the closing of the canon, and you can just see the amount of healing drop off. Such nonsense. Such unbelievable nonsense. The lengths that people will go to prove that healing doesn't take place. But this is a good first, too, to cut against the idea, if any charismatic has this idea, or Pentecostal, that healing is automatic. It ain't automatic. You don't just say a formula and hesto presto, there it is. You've got to pray and pray and pray. And I'm sure Timothy had to pray a lot because of his stomach. We go to 1 Timothy 5, 24 and 25. Some people's sins are obvious, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others surface later. Likewise, good works are obvious, and those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden. Now, Ellison says that some people's sins are obvious, so Timothy would then have no trouble in refraining from appointing such elders. And I believe that's the context here. This is what Paul is talking about. Elders whose sins are obvious and elders whose sins are not obvious, or potential elders. Some people's sins are obvious going before them to judgment. Well, what is that? Judgment at the last day? Well, that can't be because the sins of others surface later. Surface after the last judgment? I don't think so. That's impossible. So here's some other options. God's temporary judgment. Some people's sins are obvious going before them to judgment. In other words, God takes care of them temporally in this world, in this life, because of their sins. Gil denies that. He says it's human judgment. Some people's sins are obvious going before them so that human people can judge their sins. So therefore, Timothy, you can decide whether this person can be an elder or not. You can see his obvious sins, so you can make a judgment that he is not to be an elder. I like that interpretation. But the sins of others, and I'm assuming his other elder candidates, they surface later. Like this guy I told you about, his sins surfaced 10 years later. And that's where the judgment comes in. Hypocrites can hide their sins for a while, usually not for 10 years, but for a while. And again, I'm assuming this is people who are trying to be an elder or who are, are being set up or put forward as an elder. Barnes says that. Ellicott says it's for people that are applying for readmission to fellowship or maybe elders who have been rebuked and kicked out applying for readmission. I don't think so. I think it's just easy to take it generally that it's people in general or more particularly candidates for the eldership. Their sins show up later, some some of them. just depends on the person. Now, some people's sins are obvious. A lot of good that Christians do is hidden and easy to overlook. Well, let me go to verse 25. Likewise, good works are obvious, and those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden. So a lot of good that Christians do is hidden and easy to overlook. But that's because we're not supposed to let our left hand know what the right hand is doing, as Adam Clark says. These Christians are very modest, but sooner or later their reputations will precede them, and we'll see these are good Christians. They are dedicated disciples and followers of Jesus who are just laden with good works. So, again, the whole point of these two verses is just wait. And if this elder is going to be an elder, he's going to serve the body. He's going to be humble. He's going to be in love with Jesus. And you'll see it. And you won't make a mistake and appoint some of these, some of these gangrenous heretics. 
Ladies and gentlemen, I am now finished with 1 Timothy chapter 5. In our next audio, we'll look at chapter 6 in which Paul instructs Timothy concerning false teachers, which of course is the theme of the whole book. And he also mentions true contentment in the midst of that. Hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.